the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Environmental activists are increasingly becoming anti-human, telling us that people are destroying a supposedly uncorrupted version of nature. Yet humans are a part of nature. And although we should be responsible in our use of resources and protect the natural world, we should not be causing people to suffer unnecessarily. Indeed, the more humans flourish, the greater we can use our resources and skills to protect the environment. For that, we need reliable energy to supply our needs, not intermittent so-called green energy that puts us in a state of energy scarcity and suffering. My guest today is Alex Epstein, who will be discussing these crucial questions with us. Alex Epstein is a philosopher and energy expert who argues that human flourishing should be the guiding principle of energy and environmental progress. He's the author of the new best-selling book, Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. He is also the creator of EnergyTalkingPoints.com, a source of powerful, well-referenced talking points on energy, environmental, and climate issues. Widely recognized as a master of persuasion and debate on energy issues, Alex has spoken at dozens of Fortune 500 companies and dozens of prominent universities, including Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and his alma mater, Duke. He's also a highly sought-after consultant on messaging, working with dozens of political offices on pro-energy, pro-freedom messaging. (laughs) So this is great to have you on, Alex. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm especially interested in your pro-freedom messaging, and I think you very much align with Dr. Jay Lair on that. And, you know, it's really sad that we don't have Dr. Lair with us anymore. He passed away suddenly, unexpectedly, in January. Did you know Dr. Lair, Alex? Uh, I did. I mean, we I knew him mostly through correspondence, but we met on a few occasions, and we had, a, I mean, it was always great to meet him in person. Yeah, we just we just always got along uh really well he was always incredibly encouraging yeah i used to call him superman because you know i'd call him up he was 84 when i remember him saying this he died at 85 uh i'd say oh gee you know how, how are you doing today he says oh i'm kind of tired you know i only biked about 30 miles today i think he's 84 and he's biking 30 miles also he would swim a mile at a time two or three times a week you know and uh, no, he was, he was an incredible guy. And then the, sky, the skydiving thing was crazy. Oh, you know, he, yeah, just, exactly. he had that record for a number of months consecutive jumping out of a plane. I remember I first interviewed him for my podcast Power Hour in 2011. So I at least uh, have corresponded with him since then. He was one of my first guests. And he, uh, he like I have this thing where we're you know pro all forms of cost-effective energy. So we talked about nuclear energy. And he was one of those people who was able to be totally pro-nuclear and pro-fossil fuel, whereas a lot of people tend to get partisan or tribal and feel like, oh, I'm a fossil fuel guy or I'm a nuclear guy. And he just had a general enthusiasm for energy's power to improve human life. Yeah, energies that actually actually are not intermittent, energies that are solid. You know, it's funny because I see, for example, the natural gas industry at one point was working with the Sierra Club, I think it was, on Beyond Coal. And, you know, I thought, you morons, I mean, 
it's not going to be long before after they've destroyed coal, they're going after you. Now they have programs across the U.S. in some places anyway as beyond natural gas. I mean, it reminds me of Benjamin Franklin. Didn't he say we have to hang together or we'll all hang separately? I don't know. I don't know whose line that was. Yeah, the way I think about that issue is if you don't understand why coal is crucial for human life in a world where the vast majority of people use almost no energy by our standards, then you don't understand why natural gas is good. I mean, you could mm-hmm. say in a vacuum, in, in a bunch of dimensions, gas is better than coal, although coal is you know much more compactly stored naturally, which has a lot of uh, huge advantages, particularly if you don't have really good pipeline infrastructure, which of course the green movement prevents us from having really good pipeline infrastructure. But like, even if you could say, okay, well, all things being equal, uh, gas is better in some ways. Coal, I mean, think about just how many billions of lives coal has lengthened by mm-hmm. allowing billions of people to go from manual labor societies to what I call in fossil future machine labor societies. And so this idea of, oh, well, yeah, coal's a little too dirty, so we just shouldn't use it. And by we, it really means poor people. Oh, I mean, yeah. that is such a crazy and ultimately anti-human view that, that I think the fact that the natural gas industry was attracted to that and in some ways still is attracted to that shows a very insufficient appreciation actually of natural gas itself because it's a really insufficient appreciation of cost-effective energy, how valuable it is and how needed it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess one of the points about both coal and nuclear is you store huge amounts of the resources needed to burn, to make heat, to, to call, you know, make steam. You, you actually store those resources on site. That's super valuable. I mean, the, the case of natural gas, natural gas is this amazing opportunity, particularly for America, but it's got, it's precarious in large part because of the green movement, which is really the anti-development movement. Because mm-hmm. what you have with gas is, you know, you've got this unbelievable growth in gas we've had recently thanks to the shell revolution and we have huge potential to grow it more we could also grow coal quite a bit but with gas i mean you know there are good estimates that if you take appalachia so the utica shale and the marcellus shale it's at about 35 billion cubic feet of gas a day and that that could be doubled in not too much time like there have been times when the when our capacity has gone up by 10 billion cubic feet a day which is that's like 6 billion cubic feet is 1 million barrel of oil equivalent. It's something like 1.4 million barrel equivalent increase in a year between Mm -hmm. 2017 and 2018. Like we have so much potential to increase this stuff and and provide so much low cost reliable energy for the US and around the world. And yet what's happening is that region is barely growing at all thanks to lack of infrastructure. Uh, particularly lack of pipelines, also lack of what's called LNG export facilities, so liquefied natural gas facilities. And we're at the point where not only are we not having this incredible possible proliferation of natural gas, but we're having all sorts of shortages and problems, whether it's people in New England paying you know, five or six times the price that other people are paying, but also just electricity problems, because we're not building the pipeline infrastructure necessary to have a natural gas-powered grid. So we have, and plus, we're adding all these quote renewables, which I often call unreliables, to the grid. So it's just it's such a it's such a tragedy, and so much of it comes from undervaluing energy. Like if you sufficiently value energy, then so much other stuff you start to really see. Wow, coal is amazing, nuclear is amazing, gas is amazing, 
And we need more of all this stuff. And that's that's a way higher priority than something like reducing our CO2 emissions. Oh, yeah. Isn't it also partly that the environmentalists, or at least some of them, actually undervalue human life? Definitely. I think this, this is a big... This is a big theme of my book, Fossil Future. My, my belief is actually that most disagreement about this issue is not scientific, it's philosophical. And ultimately, it comes down to, do you have a pro-human uh, philosophy of the world or an anti-human philosophy? So there, there are a couple aspects here. So one is, you can notice that the people predicting catastrophe and telling us we need to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels to avert catastrophe, they have a very certain view of human impact on Earth. And it's it's basically that human impact on Earth is always going to cause a catastrophe or apocalypse. So in the 70s, in the 60s, it was, we're going to run out of resources because our greed is going to just deplete the Earth of its of its scarce resources. And then it's, no, we're going to overpollute the Earth so that we won't have clean air and drinking water and, you know, that we'll block out the sun with pollution. And then it's, well, we'll have catastrophic climate change in the form of global cooling. And then, and cooling would be terrible. And then, no, no, we're going to have catastrophic global warming and warming would be terrible. So notice whatever we do, if we have an impact, it's bad and it's expected to be catastrophic. And I think this, the fact that there can be so many false predictions, because even with climate in, insofar as there's been warming, has not been at all catastrophic. We're actually safer from climate disasters than we've ever been actually far, far safer, largely thanks to fossil fuels, which allow us to do heat and air conditioning and irrigation for drought relief and bu- building sturdy buildings, et cetera. But like we have this movement that keeps having terrible predictions. They keep being the exact opposite of right. I call it 180 degrees wrong because the world gets better. They keep predicting it's going to be worse. Like that, that can't be an accident. And, and I think it's that ultimately they have this idea that that the earth is what I call a delicate nurturer. So it's it exists in this delicate nurturing balance that's stable, so it doesn't change too much. It's sufficient. It gives us enough as long as we're not too greedy, and then it's safe. It doesn't endanger mm-hmm. us much. And then human beings are, I use the term parasite polluters. So we just take from the earth and we ruin the earth. And so if you have this view of human beings, then you always expect in industry in particular, because it has quite a bit of impact, to destroy the earth. And and I think the key, one of the keys is no, no, we need a pro-human reality-based philosophy that recognizes nature is not a delicate nurture. It's what I call wild potential. So it's it's dynamic. It changes a lot in all sorts of ways and all sorts of timescales. It's deficient. It doesn't give us enough resources if we want 8 billion people to flourish. And mm-hmm. it, it is dangerous. It's constantly endangering us. Human beings are not parasite polluters. We're what I call producer improvers. So we add value to the world. We actually make the world, we add new resources through our ingenuity. And we improve it. We actually, in many ways, make the earth a much better place, whether it's preserving certain species if we want to, or or um, something like cleaning naturally dirty water, which has been a huge mm-hmm. achievement. So this is one way in which uh, anti-human philosophy has really polluted, no pun intended, the way we think about this issue. And, and there are some other ideas, too, that I talk about in Fossil Future, but that that's a key one, this idea of the delicate nurturer view of earth versus the wild potential view of earth. Yeah. And I see why, in fact, it's important to have a philosophical approach to this, because you have groups, for example, like the human voluntary extinction movement. Now, they're not saying we should all kill ourselves, but they're saying we shouldn't have children because they believe that getting rid of humans 
and they are a form of environmental group, will bring nature back to its normal, natural condition. But then you sort of have to say, well, then if humans aren't natural, are we like supernatural? I mean, surely we are part of nature. I mean, surely the yeah. whole philosophy is wrong. Yeah, but then, then this all just gets to another anti-human idea, which is a moral idea, because you're right, like, why are they excluding us from nature? And what, what you sort of get is there's a specific hostility toward us that doesn't extend to the rest of nature. You know, like if a bird builds a nest, they say that's great, right? A beaver builds a dam, that's great. But if human beings build a home, that's, quote, unnatural. And so it's really, not, but but that's an expression of our nature, right? I mean, birds, and we just have much more sophisticated brains than those other species. We can accomplish more. From the perspective of thinking of nature as a whole, you would admire that. You would think of us as the best of nature, like in that, you know, Sophocles and the Ode to Man, that, that mm -hmm. kind of um, poem, or uh, I forget what it's technically, but, you know, they're, they're praising man compared to you know, humans compared to the other species. So it's it's really an anti-humanism that views human impact as uniquely bad and the rest of nature's impact as uniquely good. And I think that it's a very it's a very deep-seated idea that I think a lot of people have that there's something wrong, there's something morally wrong with us impacting nature. And I think this idea of the delicate nurture is a kind of excuse or rationalization. Because people think, oh, well, no, 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 it's not that I hate humans. It's that I'm worried that human impact is going to ruin the earth for humans. But it's such a stupid view that human being, human impact is going to ruin the earth for humans inevitably. Like that would be like saying bird impact is going to ruin nature for birds. That's not how it works. Like it, species impact things to benefit themselves. And yeah, sure, you can make mistakes, but in general, it's going to be beneficial for you. And our impact has been very beneficial for us. So this idea that our impact is inevitably self-destructive and it's actually in our interest not to impact anything. Uh, that's just a rationalization, I think, for a deeper hostility toward human impact and, and a real belief that there's something wrong with us as a species and the, and, and the worship of an earth without us as, as the ultimate ideal. Yeah. So do you think then that people on our side of these environmental arguments, people that are being practical about what's actually happening in the real world, should we be focusing more on trying to explain to people the, the wonderful things that humans have accomplished from Mozart to landing on the moon to solving diseases, you know, to helping the poor. I mean, it would strike me that if we could get people to think more of humanity as a wonderful thing, a wonderful evolution of nature, that that would be probably helping our cause. I think so. But I think particularly in the context of thinking about the, our environment, because I think a lot of this even if people think of human beings, oh yeah, we accomplished a lot. They sometimes, they, they have this view that there's something called the environment that we harm versus I think of earth as our environment. You know, just like an lion thinks of earth as its environment. It doesn't think of, oh, there's this thing called the environment and my job is to preserve it. No, it's just the world and it's our environment. And we want to make it as good for a lion as, they want to make it as good for a lion as possible. And they don't have that much power to change it, but they have some and we have more. And that's a good thing because we can we can make it really hospitable to us, including being able to enjoy nature. Now, I'm about to get married and we're going on honeymoon to Africa and on safari and seeing gorillas and all these great things. And like, this is all an, this is all an achievement of using a lot of energy, but more broadly, just mastering 
earth so that somebody who lives in California can go enjoy, you know, the miracles of or the miraculous animals on a continent across the world. So I think that, that people need an environmental philosophy that really that really looks at the world and says, hey, look, like we're not we're part of nature. We're the best part of nature. It's a good thing for us to make the world a better place as we see it. We should do that intelligently. But getting rid of this idea that there's something wrong with our impact. Now, it's not the goal is not to impact things as much as possible as an end in itself. Nobody thinks that way individually, and you don't. We don't think that way as a species. But it is to it is to have the best lives that we can, and that involves a lot of impact on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I really embrace intelligent human impact uh, of Earth as a good thing. And, and I, I really criticize this idea that our impact is mm-hmm. bad. It's interesting. I used to work with a fellow, um, Charles Lachlan, who's an anthropologist and very much a philosopher. And he thinks that essentially humans are the way in which the universe comes to know itself, you know, that we are the <laughs> observer, so to speak. And, and you know, you hear, this, you hear this in science fiction, for example. I don't know if you saw Babylon 5, for example. Uh, and they yeah. talk about the role that humans and intelligent life play in the universe as a whole, and that we are bringing sentience, so to speak, to the insentient, uh, you know, by po- colonizing the solar system eventually and that sort of thing. But anyway, we're getting way off onto the, that sort of issue, but it's a fun topic to talk about. And, and I really wish people would appreciate the importance of humans. And, you know, well, let, let's just talk about, let's just talk about affluence again with climate. Cause I think, mm-hmm. I think it's really comes up in climate. And I think some people who are skeptical of climate catastrophe would benefit a lot from philosophy. Cause you think about what's the goal of the, you know, the climate movement. I mean, their explicit goal is something like net zero by 2050. But really what that translates to, what translates to, one thing it translates to is rapidly eliminate fossil fuels. But from a philosophical perspective, what it means is our number one goal is to eliminate our impact on climate. And I think that should be a very questionable goal. Like, why is your goal with respect to climate your, your goal, I mean, to everything, but even with climate, to eliminate your impact on climate. Like, shouldn't, is that actually anyone's goal with climate? Because throughout history, most people's goal with climate has been to master it, to make it as livable as possible. And so a lot of my work is focused on this issue of not, let's look at climate livability. Let's not, let's not focus on, are we impacting climate or not? Exactly how much are we impacting it? That's the issue. That's a sub-issue of how livable is climate? When you look at it from that perspective, you see, wait, human beings are in a climate renaissance. Climate has never been so livable because our ability to master it is so high. And any changes that we've made as a byproduct of that ability, you know, by burning fossil fuels mostly, like those are very minor. And some of them are positive and some are negative, probably, but they're very minor in comparison to an increase in our mastery ability. It's kind of like if you, you know, if you have a way of um getting rid of like you can cure a certain virus or something like that you know you have vaccines or antibiotics to deal with the virus like and let's say the virus is five percent more frequent but you can deal with it like of course you would take that deal because you're, you're the livability of the earth with respect to that virus is much higher it's similar with climate the same with climate where like our livability is so high that nobody talks about this is crazy because if you brought somebody from 100 years ago to now they would be like oh my gosh climate is so much more livable i'm glad i didn't live 100 years ago Whereas yeah. now we worship the climate a hundred years ago because we're not looking at it from what I call a human flourishing perspective. We're not looking at climate 
from is this conducive to human beings flourishing, by which I mean having long, healthy, opportunity-filled lives. We're looking at it from the perspective of, of amount of impact. So again, it's it's a philosophical issue. And I think the the anti-impact side, really, which is really the anti-human side, I think they've framed the whole climate discussion in terms of climate is good insofar as we don't impact it versus I, I would frame it in so far as climate is good insofar as it's livable for us. Right. And we don't want to live in the kind of climate that existed for a lot of human history. You know, I mean, during the Little Ice Age and the medieval, you know, these various periods when it was much colder. And, you know, it sort of makes me wonder. I mean, you know, some groups are anti-human, like this voluntary human extinction movement. But do you think the vast majority of the environmental movement, the climate change people, extreme people, are they actually anti-human by accident or are they anti-human, do you think, philosophically? Uh, both. I think I put, I, I talk about this in chapter three of, of Fossil Future quite a bit, and this is what I call the anti-impact framework. And I mentioned this idea of the delicate nurture and the idea that, um, you know, that, that our impact is bad and that we should get, get rid of it. I think the, there are these deeply anti-human ideas, but people don't hold it as I'm being anti-human. So even with the delicate nurture thing, People don't, in the parasite polluter thing, they don't think of it as anti-human. They just think of it as, oh, this is how I'm taught to think of human beings and our environment. So like, yeah, of course we shouldn't be impacting the earth so much. Of course, you know, the earth is going to run out of carrying capacity or whatever the current version of delicate nurture calls this idea. And then in terms of just impact being morally wrong, and not just climate impact, but all impact, you see this all over the place. Even the idea of being great. You know, green means minimal, no human impact. And people just, you know, you look at corporations and they're just always bragging about no impact, no impact, no impact. Like, let's limit our impact. And just this idea is bad. But I think most people hold it in a way that there are a couple of fallacies. One is the fallacy I mentioned that, oh, impact is going to harm us because we're we're hurting the delicate nurture. And so they think of they think of being against impact as selfish for humans because, oh, we're avoiding impact and therefore nature won't punish us. And there's also, so that's a way of confusing people. And another way of confusing people is this idea of, of minimizing impact is, I think, deliberately vague, at least by the leaders, it's deliberately vague in that what kind of impact are you minimizing? Are you minimizing human harming impacts or human helping impacts? So when people think about minimizing impact, they tend to think about, oh, we're going to have less pollution and less unnecessary destruction of natural beauty. And they're not thinking about, oh, we're not going to have farms. We're not going to have factories. We're not going to have roads. But the idea of minimizing impact means opposing all of those. And it mainly means opposing the farms and factories and roads, because those are the main kinds of impacts we have. But people associate it with minimizing pollution. So I think when, when people think of minimizing impact it's a deep minimum how could minimizing human impact not be an anti-human idea like it's it's kind of obviously if you step back and think about it but because people hold it as oh well impact is sometimes self-destructive and impact i'm just thinking about the human harming impacts it people hold an anti-human idea but they they feel like they're doing it in a pro-human way but it functions as an anti-human idea like in practice even though people might have pretty good intentions they're functionally anti-human Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think fundamentally they're mistaken concerning the earth being so fragile anyways. I mean, you remember yeah. Dr. Patrick, Dr. Patrick Michael, who passed away, unfortunately, just recently. 
He said, no, he said, the real paradigm is a robust earth paradigm. And you have to realize, of course, it's robust. Otherwise, you know, we would have had a runaway greenhouse effect many times in the past when CO2 was much higher. And, you know, all of these different things are self-correcting because, of course, there is built into it, you know, feedback cycles that are almost always negative. So, I mean, surely it's really a pretty robust system. system. Well, well, but it's that's an interesting thing. I think that's true within the parameters of, you know, it's sustaining life and having temperatures and precipitation that are conducive to some form of life. But I would say it's it's not robust for any particular species. So for us, like what, what we need to focus on, I mean, even in our current era, imagine life without all the technology we have. Like th- we would experience the earth as an unlivable place, certainly if we wound up with 8 billion people, but we lost all the technology and all the energy that powers all the technology. So, I think we really need to recognize that, yeah, the reason Earth, we experience Earth as so livable and, and in particular as abundant and safe as we experience it is very much the function of uh, the machines that we use to, to amplify our, our naturally meager abilities and overcome the deficient and dangerous nature of the planet. Like, I really think of the planet as quite inhospitable and us as quite incapable until and unless we harness machines to amplify and expand our abilities. And that requires energy that's cost effective. One of the things that really concerns me is that we built our population up to 8 billion with fertilizers, you know, with our technology, et cetera, fossil fuels in particular. If you take that away, aren't you pulling the rug out from under civilization completely, which would lead to literally billions of people dead? I mean, isn't that the outcome of getting rid of the things that allowed us to grow to 8 billion? I talk about this in chapter four of the book. It is really scary how little thought there is. You know, there's this idea that the people opposing fossil fuels are very um, cautious. Like they, they, they often use this term precautionary principles. So they're like, though we're so cautious, you know, we're worried about the negative side effects of fossil fuels, but there's no caution about, wait a second, we have a food production system that's totally unprecedented that allows us to feed 8 billion people better than the world used to be able to feed 1 billion people. That production system depends hugely on diesel fuel which relies on the very special properties of oil. And then it uses natural gas derived fertilizer. And yet we're talking about essentially getting rid of both of those in the next 27 years or so. And, and that's not, and because at best certain, a couple of academics people can conjure up claim that it's going to be doable and it's all going to work, even though none of it has ever been done anywhere. Like, this, this should be at least, ter- at least people should be terrified by it. it might not work. I mean, I think there's no chance, there's no evidence it'll work at all, but there's no, and certainly not work everywhere, but there's not even a fear of what if it doesn't work. And, and to mm-hmm. me, that just shows how just sad the state of education, including the education or at least the mindset of the educators is because like people should obviously terrified about the prospect of losing fossil fuels for food alone and mm-hmm. the fact that they're not and in fact most people are taught to be afraid of fossil fuels for food because the idea is oh they're gonna in the next 27 years the earth will become so hot and we won't be able to grow anything and, i mean this kind of absurdity but, but they're not afraid of losing 
fossil fuels, which I, I've called them once the food of food. Like they, they power the machines that allow 8 billion people to live. So it's that that's such a power. That's always been a powerful example to me. And it's, I talk about it quite a bit in Fossil Future Chapter 4 of just how the earth is such an artificially or unnaturally nourishing place because of fossil fuels. And if you're making decisions about the fate of 8 billion people, you really better understand how they are fed. Yeah. So the whole climate movement is reckless in that sense. I mean, it's totally yes. reckless. It's totally, it's totally reckless. And they, they think of it as, oh, it's so reckless to increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And it's not reckless to try to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels. But look, we've been increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere for a while. And it's gone really well in terms of how much life has gotten better overall. And we know from history, CO2 has been much, much higher. And course, the earth didn't burn up. And there's all this science around that. But it's obviously reckless to take the one thing that has made it possible for billions of people to have any kind of opportunity at what we would consider an acceptable life and set a target on that and say, hey, we're going to get rid of that. And we even see in recent years, just with the global energy crisis, that even by restricting the growth of fossil fuels, because it hasn't even gone down in consumption, even by restricting the growth you cause a global energy crisis and all sorts of shortages and, and problems. So it is, yes, it's an unbelievably reckless movement. Yeah, for sure. We got to go for a break now. I really direct people, and I've got to read this now, hearing, hearing you talk about this. Fossil future, why global human flourishing requires more oil, coal, and natural gas, not less. So I'll be right back with the author of that book, Alex Epstein. I'd like to remind our listening audience that we rely on donations to keep our show running. We hope that you'll consider donating at icsc-climate.com. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Did you know that doctors and nurses have been swabbing their noses with povidone iodine to protect from airborne threats like colds, flus, and pandemic-era strains for decades? Cofix RX took that idea and made a more complete nasal formula with lasting cleansing effects. Maybe you're traveling soon or going to an event. Are you concerned somebody nearby might be sick? Maybe the office or classroom stresses you out. Get yourself a bottle of Cofix RX nasal solution. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rx nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep 
deep and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. My guest today is Alex Epstein, philosopher, energy expert. He's the author of the new best-selling book, Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. And I think that's really important. So Alex, you know, we were talking about how the climate change extremists are reckless because they're going to pull, they would like to pull the rug out from under us concerning how we got to 8 billion people, you know, so we got to take a step back and What's your outlook on the future of energy in our society? And what sources do you think are most promising? Assuming, of course, the climate activists don't get us to turn it all off. Well, I'd say at a fundamental level, the sources that are most promising are the sources that free people will choose to produce and use. So my, my main principle is energy freedom. I believe that we have, you know, we should have the right to different potential producers can explore different ways of producing energy. And then as consumers, we can choose it. And you need, you know, you need laws against unreasonable levels of pollution and other kinds of endangerment. But in general, that that's what's necessary. And so we've seen, because it's, it's, it's dangerous to get into the business of, oh, I know so much about energy, so I can predict exactly what it'll be like in 30 years. I don't think anyone can do that. And I think it's, it's dangerous to pretend that you can. And I don't think anyone has the right to, in the sense of they don't have the right to force other people to abandon their plans because they think something is good. So somebody has some scheme to make, you know, oh, I, I can make solar, wind, and batteries work really well. My view is, okay, more power to you. Like if you can deliver reliable electricity and you take responsibility for that and you can use solar and wind and batteries and have some sort of black box, great. Like if you're willing to sell that to me reliably on demand at a reasonable price, then, then yeah, that's great. But the advocates of these things, they, they, they see, they have the veneer, and it's not even the veneer; it's stronger than that. It's they, they like projecting the image of we're so excited about technology. We just are so beside ourselves because we're so excited. You know, the sun and the wind. What amazing new ideas for how to generate energy and batteries! Oh my gosh, it's all so exciting. Sorry for my slightly sarcastic tone, yeah. but we, and, and the way we're going to, but, and, and we're so excited that we are going to force them on you. So we yeah. are going to take your money and give incredible subsidies to these things. And we're actually going to mandate it many places. And also we're going to rig the grids so that the grids pay the same amount or more for unreliable electricity as reliable. 
and then everyone else is just responsible for reliability somehow. That's not our concern. Like that is not being pro technology. That's mm-hmm. being pro coercion. That's being pro dictatorship, and it's not acceptable. So my view is, I'm very enthusiastic about any technology that's willing to compete on a real market. And I think if you look at at it from that perspective, what you see is the fossil fuel industry has been head and shoulders above everyone else uh, because it still produces 80% of the world's energy. It's still growing, it, you know, despite the huge cultural hostility, despite 100 years of aggressive competition from alternatives. Uh, it's particularly growing in the parts of the world that care most about cost-effective energy, like China, which has more new coal in the pipeline than we have coal total uh, mm-hmm. in the United States. So it's just like the fossil fuel industry is really doing something special in a world that I always want to stress needs far more energy. We have 3 billion people, for example, who are using less electricity than a typical U.S. refrigerator uses. So just the world needs so much more energy. Fossil fuels are so good at producing it. We could talk about why, but that's definitely the fact. You know, we have in terms of promising alternatives, we have hydro, which has accomplished a lot, but it's it's location limited. It can't work everywhere. And then we have nuclear, which has shown a lot of promise, but become much, much more expensive. I think because of really irrational uh, regulations and and worse, and sometimes bans by the same types of people, usually who are against fossil fuels. I think nuclear, we have reason to be excited about its potential, but we need radical reform in policy. And you know, there are things like deep geothermal that are kind of interesting. You're using you're using kind of a, a continuous source of heat from very uh, deep below the surface. It doesn't work yet, but it's plausible. So we want the freedom to explore that. And then solar and wind so far have been uh, a failure. So they have added cost to the grid because they haven't they haven't come up with a solution where they themselves can be self-sufficient, you know, using batteries. We can talk about batteries, but batteries are just so cost prohibitive. So what they do in practice is they really parasite off fossil fuels, usually fossil fuels, but also nuclear and hydro. And, and with fossil fuels, it's particularly coal and gas, because oil we we focus on for transportation because it's a higher valued use. But you see the solar and wind, they're they're like what's what happens is they depend on fossil fuels. And to really and to really keep your reliability of solar and wind, you need nearly a hundred percent backup. So you have to pay for the you have to pay for a whole reliable grid infrastructure. And then you pay for the unreliable grid infrastructure. So it ends up adding cost. So you have these infrastructure duplication costs. And then what often happens is if you don't want to pay those huge price premiums like a place like Germany does, because they've they've done the infrastructure duplication to preserve reliability, but they've catastrophically high prices. What happens is then states like California and Texas, they play reliability chicken. So they try to cut back on the reliable electricity, and then they hope that the unreliables will work, right? So they hope the sun shines enough, the wind blows enough, doesn't get too hot, doesn't get too cold. That's just a ridiculous energy policy, and it's bound to fail, as we've seen very conspicuously in both states. And now we're seeing around the country, we're playing reliability chicken and more and more authorities are warning us. So we're having higher prices from the infrastructure duplication costs, and then lower reliability from, in large part, trying to avoid those infrastructure duplication costs, plus just mm-hmm. plus just the hostility toward fossil fuels in particular. So if you look at that, the you know, I think the thing is, Fossil fuels are going to be really crucial going forward. Nuclear has a lot of potential. Hydro has more, some potential to expand. It's not going to take over the world. And solar and wind have yet to demonstrate 
any real potential. I do think people should be free to explore them, but I think we need to get rid of all the favoritism and solar and wind really, solar wind plus whatever backup they can supply on their own, that needs to compete to provide reliable energy, specifically reliable electricity, and then more power to them if they can, but so far they can't. Yeah, yeah. Tell me if you think this is realistic. There was a teacher who actually testified before the City of Ottawa Environment Committee, and she said this. She said, if a student came to me and said they had a radically new way of learning that the student wanted me to now start using on the whole class, I would ask the student, have you tried it yourself? And if the student said no, I would say, well, you go ahead and try it yourself and tell us how it works out. So she then turned to the council, the committee members, and she said, if you can't name another city that has done this mass conversion to wind and solar, getting rid of all the fossil fuels, will you try it out yourself and demonstrate to the rest of us how it works? Go for a year just using electric vehicles. You know, go to very high insulation standards in your house. Just take public transit and a walk and then come back to the council and tell us how it works. Is that, I mean, surely that's the way the you smart, try it. smart woman. Yeah. Yeah, that's the yeah. way you try any transition is you don't say the whole society is going to switch over. You take a subset and you say, let's do a pilot study. So, I mean, is she right? Does it make sense? Yeah. So she's, it's, it's a great, I, I love the whole presentation of it. And I think if you, if you have that in mind, you can see there's just a very deep insincerity slash idiocy, but in the whole 100% renewable movement and with some it's more in i think with the leaders it's more in sincerity so just look at uh, you know because you hear all these claims about oh this study says that we solar wind and batteries can power the world by 2040 or something like that it's like oh it's an academic oh how could i ever how could they ever be wrong how could an academic be wrong about a business plan for the entire world if you put it that way then you think wait how could they be right like would you trust an academic with a business plan for a 7-eleven maybe not but certainly not a business plan for every energy business in the world. So, but assuming you don't have that kind of perspective on it that I have, just think about what they're claiming. So to, to the Ottawa woman's point, one thing all these studies are claiming is that something that has never been done anywhere can be done cheaply everywhere the first time. Right. So how, <laughs> how plausible is that? So that's kind of one general note about these quote studies, which are really just speculations or, or just concoctions really yeah. and then another thing is that all of these involve these schemes involve um totally unprecedented increases in development particularly mining so they they all involve um they all involve like more than doubling the mining for at least 10 major kinds of minerals and if you look at the history of mining it's basically impossible to, I mean, there, there's no precedent for industries doubling in size in a decade. And yet many, many minerals have to be doubled decade over decade to reach these quote goals. Mm-hmm. And yet the claim is this will be cheap. So they're claiming that an unprecedented amount of development on a crash timetable will be cheap. And yet we know that's not cheap. That, that drives up prices if you're on a crash timetable. And then the third thing is they claim that this thing that has never been done before that requires unprecedented amounts of development will be cheap and work the first time in a world that is anti-development <laughs> that they are the leaders of. 
Yeah. Right. This is the whole thing. The green movement is the anti-development movement. They're against impact. Development is impact on a significant scale. So this whole idea of, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to have this energy transition and it's going to be amazing given it's never been done and it involves all this mining. Like you're the ones who are going to, who would prevent it from being doable if it was doable, which it isn't, right? You're the whole people who are against mining. So you have this spectacle of say the Biden administration saying, oh, well, we're going to have this amazing green energy economy. And they say, which involves unprecedented amounts of mining and increases in mining. And oh, by the way, here's this huge promising patch of Minnesota and nobody can mine there for at least 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And it that's also makes the, that's the insincerity. <laughs> yeah, it makes me wonder if there's an underlying motive on the part of some environmentalists, some people encouraging them. You know, let's say somebody says, well, you haven't had any training in mountain climbing, but I'm sure that tomorrow you can climb the Matterhorn. Uh, you might be wondering if they're trying to kill you. <laughs> and so it actually makes me wonder that many of the environmentalists are not stupid. They're not, and they, they perhaps some of them even know what you're saying. So maybe what it is, is that they are truly trying to not have our standard of living, to not have the number of cars. Because if what we're showing, you know, that their plans are impossible to maintain our standard of living and have this many people living, et cetera, and well-fed, with their plans, maybe they know that. Maybe they're saying, yeah, and of course we wanna cripple the West. We wanna see the standard of living drop down. We wanna see only one person in 10 have a car. I mean, is it possible that some of the people know that it's impossible and that is why they're pushing it? Well, if you think about the, the green movement is the eliminating human impact movement and eliminating human impact means lowering the quality of or eliminating human life. I mean, imagine you had like a movement that was the eliminating bear impact. Yeah. What do you think their goal is for bears? It's no not bear. to have more bears living bears. So it's just, it's one of these things, you know, it's always dangerous to bring up like historical mass murderers. And that, but the, part of what you see with some of these guys is they say what they're going to do. They're pretty clear about what they're going to do. And the Green Movement is pretty clear if you say, hey, wait, like we want to, human impact is bad. We want to get rid of it. That's pretty clear about what your intention is. And then you saw at the beginning, it starts off with, oh yeah, we're going to eliminate human impact and somehow have more energy and more prosperity. And then you run into reality and like, wait, that's not going to happen. And then you start to see them saying, it's more of a Greta Thunberg thing. Like, hey, no, you got to cut down on meat and you, you got to have a smaller home and you can't drive too much and you can only... But you're still going to kind of be happier in this. And then it sort of goes to eat bugs and deal with privations. And yeah. It's good if your electricity can be cut off. And you just, and it, it's, it's all trending toward like, you're going to die. Like, that's what we need from you, right? First, it's we need you to be rich with green energy. Then it's, no, we need you to suffer some. And then it's, oh, we need you to eat bugs. And then it's going to be, oh, well, we need you to not exist. That's what I know we were already seeing it with the kids thing, right? Is, is, there, I mean, there's a huge aversion to having kids, and it totally makes sense on the premise of the movement. Because if you're if human impact is bad, the worst thing you can do is have kids. It'd be better to live out of a running car. Oh yeah. In terms yeah. of your impact on the planet, than yeah. having kids. The Sierra Club, we're actually are, and in fact, have been doing this for years. Have been advocating for abortion, and you might have seen the interview with who was previously the head of the Sierra Club uh, with Tucker Carlson. And he said, oh, why are you pushing for this? Like, how does this affect the environment? And they finally admitted after at first saying, oh, well, it's humans, human, you know, it's female rights to 
to choose what they want to do. He says, yeah, okay, sure, that's fine, but what's it have to do with the environment? And he finally admitted it's because they're trying to reduce population. Yeah, well, that's that's a very bad argument. Um, yeah. That's a very bad argument for abortion. Yeah, so, it's, it's, so I think for a woman to say, like, hey, I, I write you this, this is like good for me, and this is my right. I agree with abortion rights. But it, to say, like, this is you're going to do things to people and you're going to prevent them from having kids or force them to have abortions or force infanticide or just or even just guilt them into not having kids because mm-hmm. like because, quote, the planet. I mean, just think I mean, one perspective on this is the psychological perspective. And here you can unite the damage done by the anti-kids movement, the anti-kids movement, and then the psychological harm to kids. Because in both cases, it's the idea of we're ruining the planet, we're making it unlivable, we're ruining the future, we should feel guilty about it. And therefore, people who have a dream of having kids won't do it or feel guilt about it. And then when they do have the kids, the kids feel like a burden on the earth that, and the, that the earth is about to end. And so you have this yeah. crazy thing where actually there's never been a better time to have kids in terms of the prospects for what you can, I mean, leave, leave aside there are a bunch of cultural problems, but in terms of just the existential prospects for the kids, it's never been better. And so parents should know that and kids should know that and they should feel better about having kids. And instead they feel far worse about it. And that, you know, you never, that's just an amount of suffering that will never be like life is finite. So people living, they just can have all of this in a sense, irreversible misery. The greens always talk about irreversible, but I think of a life ruined as, irreversible. Well, yeah. In fact, I've heard some people say that the environmental movement in many ways is involved in child abuse because they're depressing young people so much. They're saying that climate anxiety, you know, eco-anxiety, this is actually a serious problem now. They they were doing a survey recently where they were showing that something like one in three children at some time during the week are very anxious about environmental survival and that this is, you know, affecting their psychology. Just to switch over to one last topic, because we only have about six minutes to go. Um, now, one thing that's kind of intriguing to me is the fact that China promotes us moving to renewable energy. So they must be benefiting somehow from renewable energy sources like wind and solar. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, you look at China and their behavior over the past few decades, and then you look at us, and it just feels like it, it's really scary to me because it feels like one of these situations that history will look back on and say, wow, one side was really strategic, and the other side was whatever the exact opposite of strategic is. Don't because be. they're, they're just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> worse than that. They just, they there's clearly this goal, and it's an explicit goal to be the dominant superpower by 2049. And part of this has been to copy, sometimes steal, but in one way or another, copy what has worked for the wealthier parts of the world, particularly the U.S., in terms of having an industrial economy that's powered by the cheapest, most reliable sources of energy they can get, which is why China's dominated by coal. And it's also been recognizing the value of a lot of different materials, including rare earth elements that are involved in solar panels, wind turbines, and batteries, but also just digital technology. And so they've just, they've, they've, they've dominated those markets to just a staggering degree. Basically anything you do in those realms has to go through China, whether they're mining up themselves or one of their satellites is mining it, or often it's their processing the material. So even if we can mine things here, which is very rare, we often have to go to China to process 
the materials. And so they've just dominated this. And so, yeah, I can imagine it's appealing in many ways for us to buy solar panels and wind turbines from them or with components from them and undercutting our own capacity. And they, they're producing them with coal. And also it appears slave labor and different kinds of abuses. But it's, it's really just it's re- and then often people have the goal to say, oh yeah, China, they're such a leader in green energy. Like they're using coal to produce green energy. Yeah. For us and they're to a consume. leader, they're a leader. That's right. They're a leader in green energy, but they're a leader in coal and oil and building refineries and da-da-da. I mean, they're a leader in all sorts of things. But so so if you're at sitting there in, in the Chinese Communist Party, you'd r- be rubbing your hands together and saying, Okay, let's get the US off of their own domestic oil and natural gas and on to something that they rely on us for. And that's what they've done. I mean, it's 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 one of these things where I don't know what's exactly happening, but it's 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 one of these things where it's hard to think of if if the domestic forces pushing that, if their goal was to make us as dependent on China as possible, they would have done pretty much what they've done. Yeah, yeah. whether that was their goal or like it's it's notable. It clearly wasn't the opposite of their goal, or wasn't the opposite wasn't a very dominant intention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, exactly. So my last question is, the IPCC is often seen as this kind of Bible that we have to follow. It's the, it's the touchstone for government policies around the world. But they've kind of misled us a bit on climate change. And, you know, do you think that they are reflecting what science actually says? <laughs> well, that's a, I'd say that's a, that's a loaded for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I would, I will, this gives me a chance to recommend a website that I have called energytalkingpoints.com. And I highly recommend that people subscribe to the free weekly newsletter there, which is just at the top of the site. So if you search, if you go to energytalkingpoints.com and you search any topic, including IPCC, you'll get a lot of really good stuff. And actually, one of the recent things we have near the top is called the IPCC's Perversion of Science, mm-hmm. which, um, which goes through their recent what's called synthesis report. And just to give you an idea of how how bad this is like an obvious thing. I think if you're talking about a synthesis report and you have to deal with, and you are dealing with climate and you care about human life, one factor you obviously have to synthesize is, Hey, what's our ability to master or neutralize climate danger? Like, what's the state of that? Cause that's going to determine how livable climate is as we've, we've talked about at length. And the IPCC doesn't mention that. So they just ignore the fact that with fossil fuels and other technologies, We've just taken the naturally dangerous climate and made it far, far more livable, having far, far fewer deaths from climate-related disasters, just less danger in general from climate. And, and they, they just deny that. So, and then they also, they also, this is less obvious, but they also distort the actual science about our impacts on climate. One kind of obvious point of proof there is they ignore anything positive. Any benefits of warming or benefits of greening, they, they act like there are none of those in their synthesis like, how could that possibly be that a, yeah. a warming gas and a greening gas will have no benefits in a world where far more people die of cold than of heat and where plants are pretty damn important given that they're the basis of our agriculture, right? Even, even if we eat a lot of meat, the, the meat yeah. eats plants. So yeah, sure. it's just, it's just, uh, it's just, this, it, it's another case of where the philosophy, it's really bad philosophy in this case, bad methodology 
guiding it. And this is why a lot of why I do the work that I do, both with the book Fossil Future and then with the free resource energytalkingpoints.com, is to have somebody, is to be somebody who's both very explicitly operating on a pro-human philosophy and who is very familiar with the relevant facts. I really thought that was a gap that needed filling when I got started on this. And so I, I try to create all these different resources that everyone can use that are based on pro-human philosophical thinking, plus really knowing all of the details about the facts. Well, that's wonderful. We got to wrap up now. I can certainly see now how philosophy and energy expertise link together. (laughs) Because of course, how do you rationalize human flourishing without actually talking about philosophy? So yeah, I really encourage people to have a look at Alex Epstein's new book, Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil and Gas, More Oil coal and natural gas, not less. So thanks so much for being on the show today, Alex. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. Okay, I'm going to send this interview everywhere. So this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. I'd like to remind our listening audience that we rely on donations to keep our show running. We hope that you'll consider donating at icsc-climate.com. 